Would you join with me in prayer? <clears throat> Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together. I pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill in the gaps of my inadequacy. I pray that you open our hearts to you even as we open up your word to us. Change us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so this morning I'm going to talk about uh, death and ghosts and zombies um, in a perky way, in perky ways. Um, I just say that because I want to get you mentally prepared because I don't want anybody going, oh, I don't like any of those things, so I'm just going to check out for the next half an hour. Uh, try to engage, if you would, please. You just got to stick with me. It gets perky. But I can't, I can't not talk about death. I There's no way I can do it because I can't pick up where we left off in Ephesians without talking about death, can I? If you haven't already done so, open up your Bibles to Ephesians. And we've got to start in chapter 2, because we, we finished off chapter 1. Chapter 2 begins, and for you, you were dead. I can't talk about this without talking about deadness. So I've I got to do that. Because that's either going to be a really negative downer, or it's not ultimately going to be a really negative downer. Right? As for you, you guys are dead. I'm going to argue it's not ultimately a really negative downer, but it requires that we look at the context of this. I mean, for instance, look at the wording here that Paul uses. As for you, that suggests some sort of comparison, doesn't it? I, I just don't want us to look at this as some sort of distinct memory verse where you go, oh, I can just read verse 1 and get it. You go, no, there's a context here. He starts off with, well, as for you guys, he's comparing our situation with something else, someone else. So i got to back up while you're still leafing through, looking for Ephesians. I, at the end of chapter 1, we're, we're looking at this where verse 19 talks about God's incomparably great power for us who believe. This amazing power that he's got working in us. And it's an amazing concept to know that God's incomparable power is at work in your life. And if you go, that sounds interesting, good, go listen to the last sermon I gave, right? Because we discussed that at, at length there. But that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Oh, that's our, that's our dead context, right? Before I talk about our situation in chapter 2, I have to remind myself the death that we talked about in chapter 1. Christ really was dead. Was he only sort of dead? Was he swooning? Mostly dead, if he just has a chocolate-covered pill. He's, right? I mean, no, he's actually, honest to goodness, for true dead, right? He was dead. He was in the grave. He was dead. You have to recognize that. The Bible's very clear. Raising him up wasn't just a, a matter of opening up the tomb so that the guy could, who had swooned could step out of the tomb. He's truly raised from the dead. That power that God used to do that, that power for us is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can even be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. So Jesus didn't come shambling out of the tomb, only sort of alive. No, he's fully alive, this perfect life, this abundant life in a perfected, resurrected body to ultimately ascend to his rightful place in heaven in prominence, now and forevermore, unendingly. Booyah. If you don't booyah thinking about Resurrection Sunday, Easter, you're missing something. 
It's a booyah moment. Unless you're one of the Roman guards, in which case, a little less booyah. A little more... God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church. And that's where you and I come in, being that we're the church. Christ has been brought back into full dominion, authority over everything that there is, including all of us. And I say brought back because it's not like it's not like this is new to him, right? It's not like this is a brand new concept that he's sovereign over everything. Colossians, Paul says, by Christ all things were created. Things in heaven and earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I just don't want us to ever think, well, the human Jesus was such a good Messiah that God went, I'm going to reward you. This is his rightful place. It's always been his rightful place. He has always been, always been over all of this. And God says he is the head of the body, the church. All this fullness of God, all this immensity is our head connected to us as a church making the same argument in Colossians that he's making here in Ephesians. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Because when he says firstborn among the dead, that suggests there will be others, right? For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus isn't just an echo. He's not just an avatar. He's filled to the fullness with the fullness that is God. Ephesians 2.22 says God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus was fully God, fully man, filled with everything that is God, filled and living that out in fullness and in every way. If I can cheat, Paul even ends up praying for us in Ephesians 3 that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Ultimately, in chapter 4, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Not just an echo, not just an avatar. Filled with everything that is God, filled in us, saturated in us, overflowing out of us. Which is not to say that you'll be God. I'm not saying that you're God. I'm not saying you ever will be God. You're not going to be divine beings. It's not going there. I'm just saying that Paul's prayer is that we are so utterly, perfectly saturated with God's fullness, that everything in us is filled with everything that is God, that every action, every thought, everything that we're doing is something that reflects God, that God so supersaturates us that we overflow into everyone else and everything that we're doing. By the way, you're not there yet, right? Your life is not every cell, every erg, every thought, every action full to the fullness of God and overflowing into everybody in perfection. You're not. I love you. You're not. So Paul's like, no, I, but I pray that that's where you're going. I pray that that's where we're at. That's where I, I want us to go. I pray for that level of sanctification being set apart more and more for God. For us to grasp that healthily and not go off into heresy, for, for us to not say either, oh, I'll be God, or just to shrug and go, cool. To realize what's going on here, in order to do that, we need to put this in its context, because Paul continues and says, all right, 
chapter 2, verse 1. As for you guys, because Jesus was really and for truly dead, but then came alive again, right? As for you guys, you were dead. Just as dead. You were dead in your transgressions, in your sins, in your wrongdoing. Jesus Christ was really, truly dead, and then God raised him back to life. You were really, truly dead. And what's the logical fill in the blank there? He was really, truly dead, and God raised him back to life. That same power is in in working in you, because you were really, truly dead. God raised you to life also. Seriously, you are honestly dead. You have to look at it that way. It's like the opening line from Christmas Carol. Remember with the whole Marley's ghost thing? And the opening line says, Marley was dead to begin with. You got to know that. There's no doubt whatever about that. He goes on and says, there's no doubt Marley's dead. He kept saying it over and over. No doubt Marley's dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. If you just think Scrooge is they're having a problem with an undigested blot of mustard. You're missing the point of the story. If you think Jesus only swooned and they just needed somebody to open up the tomb so they could get some fresh air, you're missing the whole point of the miracle of Easter. If you think that you were only meh, you were okay, I mean, you weren't great, before you became a Christian, I mean, you were wounded. You're going to miss the whole point of the story. You're going to miss the miracle that God wrought in you. Let me clarify. You were dead. Dead people can't do anything. They're dead. That's what you were, Paul says. You were actually dead. There's no doubt whatever that you were dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come from the story I'm going to relate. You were dead. This is all just whatever. Unless you recognize that you start off dead and you have to move to life. What John 3.16 says, cool, God gave his only begotten son. Yay. John 3.18 says, because y'all were dead already, right? He didn't have to condemn you because you stand condemned. He had to save you. The only way that we can be alive is not, well, being a really good kid. No, your children start off dead. You start off dead. Well, but I mean, that five-year-old is really sweet. Dead. Spiritually dead. The way to be spiritually alive is to be filled with the fullness of life that comes from the bestower of all life, the giver of all life, the creator of all life. The only way to be truly alive is to be washed clean of your death. To get all that washed away and to be infused with life, both of which we get from the transfusion of Christ's blood. If you could be alive by just being really cute and sweet, I wouldn't have needed Jesus. <laughs> and if you find that ridiculous, look in a mirror. You and I were dead.
Christ was really, truly dead. And then God raised him up from the dead and seated him in the highest place and gave him all things. You were really, truly dead. And you were dead in your sin. Jesus never sinned, but you were dead in your sin. God raised Christ up from the dead and God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's great, except it's confusing. Wait a second. Um, which is the body, the, the fullness of him who fills is Is Jesus, as the head of the church, is he the fullness of him who fills everything in every way? Or is his body, the church itself, is that the thing that has the fullness of him who fills everything in every way? Which is it? I mean, you look at the verse. What does it say? Is it Jesus who is the fullness or the church that it's the fullness? Paul's a very bad writer in that it's ambiguous in the grammar. You look at it and go, I can't tell whether he's saying Jesus is filled with the fullness or that the church is filled with the fullness. You go, pretty sure it's supposed to be yes. His body is the church. He's the head, the, the leader of us as his body of people. Or is he the head of body? He is our head and we are his body. Or is it that, and the answer to all these things being yes. You go, is it just a metaphor or is it an intense metaphor or is it an actual thing? You go, yes. You go, well, we're the hands and feet of Christ. You go, yes, in many ways, yes. Is it metaphorical? Yes. Is it real? Yes. Yes. He was filled with the fullness of God? Absolutely. The Bible is very clear. Paul says, y'all should be filled with the fullness of God. Yeah. And yet, Paul says, yeah, that's what it's supposed to be, but as for you, you guys were dead. Not what you were supposed to be. It is what it is. You guys were dead in your transgressions and your sins. That's what you've actually been doing. You were dead in that, in which those transgressions and sins in which you used to live when, you know, when you when you were dead. You used to live in that death all day long. That's what you used to do. You used to live like a shambling zombie. That's what you used to do. Putrid, desiccated. That's what you're doing. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient, when instead of following the giver and creator of all life who died to transfuse that life and purity into you, you used to at least tacitly follow the toxic guy who actually helped to bring about your spiritual death. That's what you used to do. There is no Switzerland in this fight. You are on one side or the other. People are like, I was, you know, I didn't, I was, meh. No. You're either dead in your sins or alive in Christ. One or the other. Never both. There was a time when you were shambling around, shuffling on this battlefield on the wrong side. You were on the dead side. But here's the thing. Before you kick yourself too much about this, Paul says, well, all of us did that. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. You screwed up, but you're not unique in that. 
We've all been there. All of us, because we started off dead. And he uses an interesting phrase here. The cravings of our sinful nature. Literally in the Greek, he says, the cravings of the flesh. You used to do that. Like brute beasts, thoughtlessly rummaging around, looking for what fills your hunger. That's all you were. And when you think about it, you go, isn't that what a terrifying amount of our time is spent doing? We might dress it up in all sorts of fancy, complicated ways. But an amazing amount of the human condition, if you're not careful, is just going, well, I got this need, I'm going to do this. I got this hunger, I got this. I got this craving, I want to do this. I got this, I got to do. I got this, I got to do this. This makes me happy, so I will do this. And you go, so much of your life is, I want this now. <laughs> I want this shirt. I want this now. I want your shoes. Give me your shoes. I want food. To get food, I need money, so I need a job. Give me a job so I can get money, so I can get food. We can make it complex, but so much of it is just, I crave stuff for my flesh. Y'all zombies. Rummaging around looking for the thing that fills your belly, and that's it. He's like, that's what you were. That's what we all were. That's what we all did. We all did that. And if you can't admit that to yourself, if you say, well, I mean, I wasn't that bad, then nothing wonderful can come from this story. You're missing the miracle. If you find yourself going, I mean, before I knew Christ, I, I just needed a Band-Aid. I didn't need a transfusion. You, go, you needed a whole new heart. You needed to be brought back from the dead. You need something completely different. If you can't admit this, all of us used to live among those zombies at one time or another, gratifying the f- cravings of our flesh, just filling our gut, following its desires and thoughts instead of following God's will. You're on the dead side. In fact, like the rest, we were all by nature objects of wrath. And anybody that tells you that God doesn't have wrath is selling something. Keep running into uh, colleagues whom I love and I respect that go, well, I... I think it's a misnomer to say that God has wrath. I'm like, yeah, or biblical. <laughs> By nature, we were objects of God's wrath. We were on the other side. We were enemies of the gospel. How many different phrases from Scripture do I have to bring up to the fact that you were on the wrong side? You were. Your beautiful child was. You are. You, we, me, I, us. But I love the intro to that. Look at the beginning of that verse. Like the rest. Like the rest. I wish we could say that sometime we were you know, just a little smidgy bit better than those people. And that's why God deigned to save us. I mean, just look at the look at the zombies that are still shambling around. Look at look at the danger that they're doing. Look at the inhumanity to man that we see even this week. Look at what people who are sinful do. Look at that. Look at the dangers, the horrors of those zombies. Look at the emptiness of their priorities. Look at that. I mean, I wasn't that bad. And Paul says, like the rest, just like all the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Was somebody indicted for murder? Jesus says, you ever called your brother a fool? I'm not going to say that one has the same repercussions as the other, but aren't you stepping your toe in the exact same pool? Aren't you walking down only one step 
the same highway? The moment you go, well, I can do this to him or her because I'm... because they're... Isn't it the same road? Paul says, all of us have done this. All of us have done this. You aren't any better. You're just cured. No, no, no. You're not. You're resurrected. You're not just, well, you're better. No, you were dead. And in your death, you would have done the exact same thing. You would have walked down the exact same roads. Not that far. It doesn't matter. But you're resurrected now. You're resurrected. And every single one of you sitting here today, if nothing else, by the end of the day, will know exactly how to bring back the dead. Every single one of you, at least start off at one point in your life, dead. And every single one of you will know exactly how to bring all the zombies back from the dead. Every single one of them. You know exactly what we need to do. Do you do it? But think about these three words, four words, I guess, in Greek. Think about these few words and what they do to bad theology. Like the rest, are you relatively good? I mean, you're almost as if God's grace, you kind of deserved it a little bit more because at least you're better than like the rest. We were all objects of God's wrath. Your nature was to be a zombie following the Lord of all monsters. There are no good zombies. Somebody else might go, yeah, I'm just, I'm uniquely bad. I'm kind of worse than everybody else. Look at what happened in my life. Look what, I, I, I mean, can I be forgiven? I don't think I'm as deserving and the undeserved grace as other people. How can you deserve it less or more if it's undeserved in the first place? Like the rest, you were by nature an object of God's wrath. You were messed up. You were broken. You were on the other side. Not uniquely, though. You were surrounded by zombies, just like you, following the wrong Lord, even if only in your cravings. What's the next word? One of my favorite words in all of scripture. But it's powerful, huge, tiny, little, huge, humongous pivot word. But you were zombies. You were dead. You were really dead. You were on the other side of the fence. You were on the other side of the battlefield. You were following the wrong general. But, because I told you, death goes zombies, but perky. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. You were dead, but he made you alive, and it's by grace you've been saved. And how amazingly perky is that? Perkly amazing is that? It's good. It's just really, really good. How awesome is it? It's so awesome, i got to back up and take that apart. But, pivot word, you and I were doing what we were doing, just like everyone else. We weren't up to living like we were supposed to be, like we were sculpted to be living. And yet, and but, life and death pivoted at the cross. Because of his great 
love for us. He created us because he loved us. He, he, he saved us because he loves us. He shed his own blood and died on, to wash the sin out of us and the death out of us and to adopt us because he loves us. It's all love. We were predestined in love and now we're being saved in love. How many different ways does Paul have to drench this in love? Is that what you think when you think about God and your relationship with him? Especially when you think about how sinful and broken and messed up and broken and ugly you were. You go, right, and that immediately leads me to go, he loved me so much. Or do you go, I'm bad? You go, yeah. <laughs> you were a zombie, yeah. Because he loves you. He saved you. Think about what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still the walking dead, we were on the wrong side. Christ died for us. You were not uniquely bad. and You were not relatively good. You have always been loved. Always. Because of his great love for us, Paul says, God, who is rich in mercy and his constant desire to turn away wrath from those who are suffering. And you're like, this is what you deserved and I'm not giving you that. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. How many, how many different ways does he have to say, you were dead, 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 now alive, now alive, now alive, now alive, because he loves, because he loves, because he loves, because he loves. Because Paul's a bad writer. By nature, object of God's wrath. By practice, recipients of God's love. Because God doesn't look at us and just see zombies. He sees the child that he loves. Jesus was really, truly dead. You were really, truly dead. Both because of our sin. But now neither of those conditions is true. Because God thought of all of you zombies and said, you need saving. So you and I, like the rest, have been given what we absolutely didn't deserve. It's by grace you have been saved, he said, by God's unmerited, undeserved favor. That he simply has because he's our dad and he loves us. My children are not perfect. They're not. I know that. Yours aren't either, so don't get cocky. I know, deal. But when I look at my children, I see them with their imperfections. I know their imperfections. I'm not crazy and I'm not ignorant. I'm not, I'm, I, I, I'm not delusional. I know their imperfections. But when I look at them, I don't look at them and see imperfection. I look at them and see my child, my son, if Megan were here, my daughter. I look and I see the children that I love. And if I do see imperfection, if I see that they're stressing over things they shouldn't, or they're stepping into problems that they don't need to be doing, or they're crying because they're hurt about something they shouldn't have been hurt about, or whatever, if it's something imperfect in them, it, it's not like it makes me love them less. It makes my heart bleed for them more. Because I say, oh, you're suffering unnecessarily because of your imperfections. Is God a worse dad than I am? See, a less empathetic dad than I am. Do I really think that God looks at me and only sees all of my imperfections? 
Do I think that God is so oblivious that he goes, oh, I no longer see any imperfections? Or does he look at me and say, y'all messed up, and I love you. I've always loved you. I loved you when you were a zombie. I love you even more than you're not. God raised Christ back to life, raised him to the highest heaven because of who he was. Ironically, he brought us back to life and raised us to the highest heaven in spite of who we truly are. It's by grace you have been saved, Paul says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus because that's how we got there, just like the rest of everyone else. What I love is that's a past tense. You notice that? It's not a future tense. It's past tense. Have you thought about that? You have been raised from the dead. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. And you have been seated in the heavenly realms. Right? I will be seated. Have been. How many times have you heard me say, we're not from this place anymore. We're just sojourning here. We're just passing through. You're not citizens of Peoria, Illinois, Earth. You're citizens of heaven. We're not just planted here like this is our home. This is our embassy. We're ambassadors of our real home. Our real home is heaven. Have you seen that in scripture or heard me say that from time to time? Paul says, yeah, no, seriously. Really and for true. That's where your heart is. That's where your spirit is. Your kingdom of heaven, people. You're just stationed here temporarily until you get to go home. Is that the way you see it? Or you go, well, this is my home. No, nope. This is where you're stationed as missionaries. Home is heaven. Someday you get to finally go back there. But for a wee bit, you're still here. Work here. This place is your embassy, your battlefield. You're fighting the good fight to honor God, to bring all the other zombies home, alive and well, right? Because I'm afraid, I'm afraid some media have taught us that zombies are to be killed and put into the grave. If you think that you look around and you see all those zombies around you who are doing wrong things and they're horrific and they're hurting people and they're damaging people and they're doing all these horrible things and if you say, yes, we should put them in the grave, you go, you've missed the point. You've missed the miracle. You were one of them. And you were brought back to life. We don't fight them. We fight the zombie maker. I don't want him to make any more. The only reason he does is because he wants to hurt our maker. He wants to hurt the heart of those, of the God who gave us life and love and being you're not here to fight against flesh and blood are you? you seem to remember that from the book of Ephesians we're not here to fight against flesh and blood we're here to fight against all the, the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil even in the heavenly realms because we're already there spiritually that's where our heart is isn't it? Isn't it? That's where your heart truly is, isn't it? And you go, yeah. Should be. You go, exactly. And that's why Paul's like, and I pray increasingly that this is true. Because it is true. And I want you to be more and more in line with that. 
I want you to be praying for and loving all these zombies. Because they literally don't know any better. They seem to think life is just about shuffling around looking for how to feed their cravings. Isn't that what it used to be for you? If you're not careful, don't you staple yourself to that body of death and still sometimes live like that's what life is about? You know, well, you're not a zombie anymore. You go, I know, but I keep carrying that around somehow. That's Romans. But to come back to this and go, wait a minute. It's not, it's not who you are. Don't fight them. Don't let them munch on you. But, that's, but you're not fighting them. You're here to save them. Because just like the rest, you were by nature objects of God's wrath too. It's just been by grace, by God's unmerited favor that you were saved. And God raised us up with Christ. He seated us up with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Because he loves us. And, but beyond that, also in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. To give himself glory. But also... He saved them to show the incomparable riches of his grace to us, Paul says. He saves us to show the incomparable riches of his grace. I don't know. Who's going to be sitting in Peoria in the 21st century? It's amazing grace that God chose you before the creation of the world. But think about it. He also said, I chose Paul. I saved Paul in part so that you can be saved. So that you can see my grace and be moved by it. I saved them in part to save you. That's how much he loves us. It's a powerful image. If that's the way you think about it, if that's the way you realize it, that God says, my salvation is there to show my grace so that I am honored, but also to show my grace so that you can be saved. If we truly understand that, shouldn't that change how we look at all the zombies out there shuffling around us who aren't saved, who still are lost, still dead in their transgressions and sins? Shouldn't that affect the way we look at them? Because in part, God saved us to save them. Shouldn't my heart go out to them who are falsely thinking that life is about filling cravings? They don't need, they don't just need your sympathy. They need your embassy. They need you to say, I am one hungry beggar telling another hungry beggar where to find food. I am, I am uh, a patient here at the hospital who is walking wounded so I can help you who are on a gurney. That's what I can do. Or perhaps even, to extend the analogy, your heart stopped, and I might be walking wounded, but I can go thunk, 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 and your heart starts beating again. I can help you with that. The one thing I can't do is just lean up against the wall and watch somebody come in from a gurney and go, but I've got a broken leg. Or to look at another zombie and go, how gross are you? and walk away. But, but that, that was you. That was you. And you know how to bring them back to life. You 
you know how to bring them back to life. His unmerited, incomparable power. For as by grace you have been saved, Paul says. How many times does he have to say this in this book? He said this so many different times. It's by grace you've been saved. You weren't alive enough to earn it already and you weren't too dead already to receive it. Just have the humility to go, it wasn't me. You were saved by grace through your faith, which is what he even said back in chapter 1, right? As having believed you were marked in him with a seal. That's Your faith has brought you in. That's how you accessed his grace. And this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God which is an interesting argument. You know, what's, 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 what's a gift from God? The faith is a gift from God. No, the grace. The grace is a gift from God. Remind me to talk about Greek uh, genders because this is a gift from God is not pointing to faith and it's not pointing to grace. So what's the gift? You can build whole theologies on that here. Yeah, but that's not... Maybe Paul's just a bad writer. Or is he saying it's the package, the salvation itself. It's all coming from God. Because the parallelism here is he says, it's, it, the whole thing is a gift. It's not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. What is? Your salvation. It's a gift. It's not from you and it's not from what you did. It's totally from God. That's what it's from. It's not even necessarily whatever you do from this point forward. Like, oh, I'll retroactively earn it. Because we are God's worksmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So even if you go, aha, well, I may not have been good before. I didn't earn it then. But now I'm a great Christian, and I kind of earn it now. And you go, that's what you were supposed to be doing the whole time. That is not part of your resume to get the job of Christian. It's part of the job description of being a Christian. You did not become a Christian because of you or because of what you did or what you're going to do. You have just been created to live out the fullness of the giver and creator of all life in every way, every day. Doing good works should just burble forth. Because let's, let's face it, you got the job by nepotism, right? And then. You got the job not because you're good at it. In fact, you got the job because you're bad at it. Because your dad got you the job. Your big brother went, mm, I'll go in for you. Your dad gave you the job because he loves you. And says, could you please grow up into the job? Could you just, I'd like you to do the job. Our salvation didn't come from us. This incomparably, amazingly powerful package, the kindness, the grace, the faith, the salvation that moves us from death to life, all this came from the fact that your Father loves you. And he loved you when you were still a zombie fighting on the side of the Lord of all monsters. He loved you then. And he loved you so much He's willing to give his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life sealed with his Holy Spirit pouring Christ's lifeblood into us zombies who were condemned but still loved. Therefore, he says, 
everything I've been saying leads up to this. I'm going to give an actual application point of how to live this out directly. And not just to you Ephesians, because remember, it's a form letter. So it's to all the churches, all y'all Christians. With all this in mind, we'll pick this up next week because I've run out of time. But we got to stop and go, all right, what? Given what we've already talked about, though, how do you live? Without me even going to the therefore here, what, what do you, how do you live? If you truly do remember that this is a miracle, this is a Christmas carol, you got to understand that miracle. This is an Easter morning, got to understand this miracle. This is a miracle that God brought you from honest-to-goodness death to life. And you were dead just like everybody else was. And you know exactly how to bring them back from the dead. How should you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ? How should you look at those who are not your brothers and sisters in Christ? How should you look at your father going, man, I hope I merit? You go, you won't. Oh. Oh, then thank you. Yeah. How does that change you on a daily basis? Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for all that you have done in us, are doing in us, will do through us. And I pray, Lord, help us to live abundant, living lives. Help us to love those around us well. Help us in everything, in every day, in every way, to more and more reflect your likeness because we were made in your likeness. We gummed it up. Help us every day to clean that mirror so that we reflect you better. In Jesus' name, amen.